lies, spies, and double lives, L-I-V-E-S, lives. We're going to be talking about these things today, and we're going to start off by talking about lies. Sounds like fun, right? Who doesn't want to talk about lies? First of all, as we talk about lies, let me make a statement. Lies are elementary to this world. Let me explain what I mean. Years ago, when I was but a lad living in or near a little town called Laurel, Mississippi, I went to elementary school, as most of us, if not all of us here in this room, have done at some point in time. I went to a lovely place called Shady Grove, Shady Grove Elementary. Alas, Shady Grove, the school is gone, except for they left, like a, I don't know if it would be considered uh, neoclassical, but it was a really cool uh, kind of a front to the store, uh, school. It was actually the auditorium, and that's all that's left of my elementary school. But when I was in the fifth grade, I believe it was, my parents told me that uh, a friend of theirs, that uh, uh, their son was in my class, uh, and he would begin attending this school with me, and the hope was that I would become friends with this person. And so I was kind of excited, as I recall it, uh, and so, sure enough, within a short period of time, uh, in my class, sure enough, this gentleman, this young person, I should say, showed up, and I got to know him. And much to my dismay, I found that I really didn't like him. I couldn't stand him, if you want to use that uh, vernacular. And there was a simple reason why that was. He was, in my view, a compulsive liar. In the fifth grade, believe it or not. But every single time I was around him, he was always telling something that was clearly fabricated. And really, I would say he was kind of a specialist. There's different kinds of lies, I guess. But his was you know, the, the, the variety of tall tales. He would always say something. You'd, just, you'd be listening. You know, That's totally ridiculous. That is, that, you know. And after a while, in fact, it seemed to be a very short period of time, as I recall it, I had... Wanted, I wanted to have nothing to do with him. Like, he's just ridiculous. I, and, and not long ago, I mentioned this to my dad, and he seemed shocked, I think, because he liked uh, the boy's father. But it was a very uh, memorable experience in my life. And so I ask you to take a moment. When is the first time in your life when you recall encountering a lie, or maybe a person like this who habitually lied? Certainly we experience it at some point. Now, that was a very localized situation, but sometimes lies are world-altering. Let's take a look at one of those types of lies. And we'll take a look, first of all, at the background, how this came to be. As we know, many of us, of course, Germany has been involved in two world wars over the years. In the first one, they lost, as they did the second. But at the end of the First World War, World War I, there was a German officer, I'm not sure if he's an officer, but he's definitely in the army, Adolf Hitler. We know his story, but he became extremely angry as, as the, the war ended, and he believed that the Germans were betrayed. And he believed they were betrayed by Jewish people, as you might know. And this stirred a lot of anger in him. And so he uh, wrote about this experience, at least in his views, and this showed up in his book, Mein Kampf. 
And he wrote about the Jewish people, and I'll just share a couple of quotes about what he said about them. This is how he came to feel in his anger. He said that the Jews had an unqualified capacity for falsehood. And he then goes on to say, from time immemorial, the Jews have known better than any others how falsehood can be exploited. So he had a deep and abiding hatred of the Jewish people. And while he accused them of this, it is, I don't know if the word is ironic, it's interesting that later on in his life, he became well known as the master in the use of something that's called the big lie. You probably have heard about it. Uh, the forerunners to the CIA here in this country was called, it was called the Office of Strategic Services. And they did a psychological profile on Hitler and how he used the big lie. And basically summed up, it goes like this. People will believe a big lie sooner than a little one. And if you repeat it frequently enough, people will sooner or later believe it. And we know his big lie revolved around the Jewish people. And he used that over and over again, along with his aide, Joseph Goebbels, who was his propaganda minister, to convince people to do horrific things. Millions and millions, I think the number is estimated to be around six million people died because of the lies that he spread about the Jewish people. So lies can be horrifically damaging to millions upon millions of people. Now as Christians, we have to deal with lies, big lies, damaging lies all the time. I don't know if this is true, given the subject, but I would at least suggest that perhaps Christians have to deal with more lies than any other people. I don't know that, but perhaps. So let's take a little look, a further look at lies. This is from the pages of the Bible and God's word and see what God tells us about lies. First of all, if you would turn to the book of John, chapter 8. John chapter 8, I believe this was actually referenced a few weeks ago. And we'll start reading in verse 43. We'll pick it up there, breaking into the thought. 8.43. Why do you not understand my speech, Christ says, because you are not able to listen to my word. You are, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth, not some, no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. So when we consider people who lie, sometimes we have lied I'm clearly in our own lives, we see here that from God's word, from Jesus Christ himself, we know that Satan is a liar and the father of it and has absolutely no truth in him. So we, of course, know that, but perhaps we don't think about it a lot. But we need to understand that's where it all comes from. So let's continue on as we kind of take a look from the Bible, uh, lying, and eventually we'll look at its impact upon us. Years ago, and many of us will recall this, uh, the church had a publication that was called The Plain Truth. Um, as I studied through some of the scriptures, and one we'll look at in just a moment, I came to realize that while we sought to share the plain truth, 
that Satan's lies are not always so plain. I would say it's fair to call them the not-so-plain lies. He, as we know, is incredibly crafty, and today we'll take a look uh, in the temptation of Christ as to how he approached Jesus Christ. We know this is probably one of the most monumental moments in the history of the universe. We have Satan trying to trick Jesus Christ to disqualify himself, to be our savior, to change the course of humanity. So if he is the father of lies, which we just heard, what did he do? And what can we learn from it in dealing with the challenges that we have in our own life? If you would turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 4, we'll take a look at this. And there are about 11 verses that we're going to look at, although we'll skip around just a little bit. What I want to do as I begin this is I want to look at what Satan said, first of all, and then I want to draw some conclusions from that, which I hope you'll find helpful. So if you would, again, Matthew 4, and let's look uh, first at verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So that's attempt number one to trick, deceive, and disqualify Jesus Christ. So if you can, just kind of put that up on your mental shelf for a moment. Let's drop down to the second one. Let's look at verse 5. Then the devil, after that, the second one, takes him up to the holy city, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, let me flip my page here, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands he shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So that was attempt number two. And there was a third try, as we know, and let's go down to verse eight to read that one. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Just a week or two ago, Mr. Dick references very scripture. All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. So these were the three attempts that Satan made to disqualify Christ and blow up God's plan. I mean, this is massive. It's hard, it's probably impossible to understate what is going on here, and clearly Satan gave it his very best shot. So let's take a moment and let's try to crystallize what he did, how he tried to trick uh, Jesus Christ. Here's what I came up with. Perhaps you would come up with something else, but this is what I believe he focused on. Number one, he focused on trying to create doubt about Christ's identity. He used that phrase in the first two of the three. So keep that in mind, doubt about his identity. Are you the son of God? We'll come back to that concept later on as we move through the message. And the second thing is, and this I think is perhaps uh, even more crafty in one sense, each and every time he listened or he knew, Satan knew what was on Christ's mind, at least partially. If you go back to the first instance, we know that Christ had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So guess what? He's hungry. While he had, I'm sure, multiple things in his mind, he had to be thinking at least a little bit about eating. So Satan says, hey, why don't you uh, cast, make these, these stones into bread? He knows what's on his mind. And he tries to trick him to make a mistake. 
and just, oh, yeah, I'm hungry. Oh, do it. Similarly, the second time around, he, after uh, Christ counters and says, well, look, I've got to, you're not supposed to live by bread alone. You need to uh, live by every word of God. And so now I think Satan is saying, oh, we got a guy who believes in the word of God. Oh, okay, well, I, I know the word of God. I'll share a little word of God. Let's see if I can trip you up on that. And then he says, well, look, the Bible says, in essence, that uh, God will give his angels charge over you, right? You're a, you're a word of the God Word of God guy, well, there's the Word of God, so why don't you take it? But of course, Christ once again knows it's not just one phrase, it's not just one scripture that we have to live by. And he counters again, using the Word of God, saying, look, look that's, that's not what we need to do here. You're not supposed to tempt God. Every single time, he used the Word of God. And the Word of God is the illuminating tool. It is the lamp that tells us how to spot Satan's tricks, and we have to rely on it. If we don't, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And then lastly, and I found this interesting, never occurred to me, perhaps it has to others, but he offers him kingship. He offers him rulership. He says, all you got to do is submit yourself to me. And if you think about it, that's an analog or a comparison to what Christ came to be. He was going to be a king. He is going to be a king. He's going to rule over a kingdom. But he does have to submit to someone, in this case, God the Father. So he, perhaps Satan said, look, you're going to do this anyway. Why don't you just do it right now? I'll give it to you right now. So again, think, thoughts that are in our minds naturally, it appears to me that that is what Satan is doing. He's saying, okay, I'll use your leverage, as they say in wrestling terms. You've got a lot of energy. You're thinking this. Okay, I'll just take that, but I'll take you down the road of destruction. But we know that Christ didn't fall for any of it. He used God's words to parry all of Satan's trickery, all of his deceit, and while they don't seem like outright lies, they still are. So that as a context for how Satan works, at least partly, uh, let's move on and look at three lies that Satan, I believe, and deceptions he uses against us in the church. In one way, frankly, Mr. Demers has already talked about that. A discounting or a devaluing of the Sabbath day is certainly one of them, and that is something that he uses over and over again, that same basic approach. So let's look at it. The first one I'd like to share with you is a bit wordy. I tried to boil it down a little bit, uh, but I didn't get too far. But the first lie is this. Satan wants to to be convinced that God and his way of love, long-suffering, forgiveness, and his plan to call people on his timetable, he wants us to believe that those are not the most astounding, exciting, and brilliant ways and plans ever to exist. He wants, to think, he wants us to think that they're rather mundane. Maybe not that great. So how does he do that? Well, he does it in a similar fashion to how we try to get Christ to trip up. He uses our natural tendencies. We are humans, and God made us this way, but we have some things that are core to our nature that get us or can get us into trouble. The first one is this, the love of the spectacular. We all love the spectacular. When you go to YouTube to watch a video, you go there because there's something really cool you want to see. You don't go to watch a video of someone walking down an aisle. That's not very exciting. So, and we're made that way. 
but it can be abused, and Satan, we know, in the future, will indeed try that trick again. If you would turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, and in verse 24. And there are other scriptures that say very similar things. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders that would deceive even the elect, if that were possible. We know in other places that uh, Christ said to the Pharisees, you won't believe unless you see a sign or a miracle. The Jews sought after a sign. The the Greeks wanted some sort of special wisdom. That's how humanly we tend to be. There's something that, there's a sizzle, there's an excitement. Probably it somehow connects somehow to our carnal natural being. So the love of the spectacular can be a problem and Satan will use it in the future. We know that he will perform lying wonders. Let's look at another one. I mentioned the love of the sizzle for lack of way, uh, a better way of describing it. Uh, if you would turn to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, and verse 3. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, that's basically what we're saying, your desires, the way you naturally think, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. You just got to give me something new. Give me something that you can get my juices going. That's, I think, part and parcel of our character sometimes, and we have to be careful not to let that carry us away. And I, I've been in the church for a long time now, apparently. I started coming in 1971, so apparently that's a long time. And I, at least in my view, and I would think that probably some others would agree with me, that we have seen people in the church who have itching ears, some little pet idea about you know, what day something's on or some very specific granular twiggy little thing and they get so caught up in it that that takes them away from what we've long called the trunk of the tree. And it's part of human nature and we need to be careful about it. So as we think about this, as we think about how Satan can put these lies, can use our tendencies against us, Let's take a moment to go back to where I started, which is this, God's way of love, his long-suffering, his forgiveness, his plan. I said, he doesn't, he, Satan doesn't want us to think it's the most astounding thing ever. Let's take a moment and consider God, which is uh, a possibly large subject, and even large, uh, a similarly large subject, is what is spectacular about God? If someone asks you, Mr. Demers relayed a story uh, he had in terms of dealing with someone who, was a, who believed himself to be a Christian and how they lived their life. But what if those people, a person asks you, what is God's greatest power? What is his greatest ability? What is his greatest characteristic? What would you say? Well, perhaps we would say different things. I'll share what I think it is and why I think it is. And you can agree, of course, or disagree. Uh, I think it is this that God is love. Now, he's many other things. He's a consuming fire, as we heard not so long ago, which is a very helpful message. But I believe the greatest characteristic is that he is love. Here's why. If he was not love, you and I and all other people who have ever lived would have no hope, no future. Now, when we think about love, 
long-suffering, you know, being willing to put up with the shortcomings of others, not reacting angrily and striking out in anger. Uh, it doesn't seem spectacular. He doesn't necessarily like, oh, wow, look at that guy. He shows some long-suffering. I'm going to go write a book about it. You know, we don't tend to react that way. But I think in truth, it is spectacular. We just have a hard time recognizing it as being spectacular, as being universe-altering. But I believe that's indeed what it is. So let's take a look at a couple of scriptures, or reference one and look at another that I think show this um, characteristic of God in a very uh, particular way. Most of us, and we'll probably, since the Super Bowl is tomorrow, uh, John 3.16. I'm not going to turn there. We know it quite well. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And we know the rest of the verse. It talks about his love, his sacrifice on our behalf. But there's another verse also uh, from John that I think in some ways is even more powerful. If you would turn to the book of 1 John in chapter 2. Now, I don't think I've ever seen this verse featured on a Super Bowl poster or a billboard. Perhaps it has. I just haven't seen it. But if you would turn to 1 John 2, and let's just start in verse 1 to get a little bit of context. John says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. That was his purpose. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What a wonderful thing, what a fantastic thing that God and Christ have done and do for us. And here's the verse I'd like to focus on. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, I want you to stop and think, unless you're like, when was the last time you used the word propitiation in a sentence? Can you even think of one? Now, maybe some of you are word, word nerds. Uh, and do use that word, but I will say I don't think I ever use the word propitiation in a sentence, and yet behind this uh, rarely used word is an incredibly powerful story of God's love for us. The word propitiation means an offering to appease an angry, offended party. So the angry, offended party in this case, of course, was God the Father. He was angry at all of us. He was angry at everyone who's ever lived because everyone who's ever lived had sinned. He was angry and he knew and he had pronounced and created the death penalty for what we have done. So try to imagine just for a moment, this is a little dangerous, but I'll remind you as I do this of a scripture. I want you to think for just a moment about someone who has angered you recently. Just go there very briefly, remember the scripture, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. But think about that and think about how you felt very briefly. So here we have God angry. He's not happy. And he knows, according to his own law that he created, they were all going to die. So here's what he did. He gave his son, his perfect, holy, righteous son. Oh, no, I'll give my perfect son to die for all of you people who are really making me angry. Now, I, I cannot successfully communicate, I don't think, how incredible that act is how incredible God's character is, but you know, sometimes scriptures strike you and you, you feel it, if you will, for a moment. So I hope it was helpful. 
But as we think about that, and as we think about the greatness of God, and as we think about what is spectacular and what we should be moved by, I would encourage us to think of scriptures like this, because this gets down to the heart of the matter. Yes, God is powerful. Yes, he's going to do amazing things. We're going to see miracles that will, in our physical lives, are going to you know, blow our minds, as we might say. But I believe this, this is far more important. This is far more powerful. And as we try to give our hearts to God, that that is what he wants us to be. He wants us to become. So as we think about it in our own lives, I mentioned taking a moment to think about someone who's angered you recently. How would you try to copy what God did here? How would we do that? Certainly, you don't have a perfect righteous son who's been immortal to, to give his life for others. But we could do this. We can follow his example of sacrificing something dear to us that is a true benefit to those we are angry with. That's the principle that I find there and I think God would want us to learn from. So the next time we get angry, which could be tonight, (laughs) right, or on the drive home, think about how God reacted in his anger. In fact, you could compare it or contrast it to what we talked about earlier, Adolf Hitler. We know how he acted in his anger. He destroyed millions of people. But that's not how God operates. And so it's a beautiful example, a tremendous way to try to realize how great God's ways are. And we're going to live, as, as Mr. Demarest mentioned in the book of Revelation, that's what that world is going to be like. Full of love, full of joy, full of peace. Let's move on to the second big lie that we as Christians, or one of them, that we face. God's ministers are not special. Mr. Demarest uh, mentioned praying for the ministry, which was interesting. We did not talk about what we're going to speak about. So sometimes, again, I've been in the church for a long time. Uh, We have ministers here today listening to me. (laughs) Hopefully I don't get in trouble with them or the members. But sometimes, you know, those of us who've been around for a long time, ministers come and go sometimes. Sometimes ministers preach things that are not true. This can burn us out as members. But this is yet another example of Satan's two tricks, his two techniques that I talked about before. He will use our natural ability to do what? Evaluate, critique other people's skills, abilities, and behaviors. God gave us that ability, gave us those abilities, and we are to use them. But they are very easily misused, and Satan knows that. So if we see, in this case, a minister doing something that perhaps they shouldn't, oh, not measuring up. I see that. Hmm, okay. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't know that it doesn't measure up, but how do we react to it and what do we do is, a, is, a, is the bigger and more important question. So the second technique, technique was he creates doubts about the identity. Well, you know, that guy, if he did that, could that really be a minister of God? Hmm. Yeah, I used to think of them here, now they're down here. These are, these are tricks, these are techniques that can get us in trouble. Again, it's not wrong to evaluate, but we have to be careful what conclusions we draw. Let's turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 12. We'll look at uh, a couple of scriptures here that show us, provide us some guidelines per God's word about how we need to take care in these situations. Numbers 12, verse 1. 
And Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married. So here we have an evaluation has taken place. Ah, Moses went off and married the Ethiopian gal. Mm, not a good decision. So they go on from there. They're thinking. It's what's in their brains in verse 2. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us also? So they start, and they're, of course they have been used by God. So here we go. We're down. We're going through the human, the human reasoning, and the Lord heard it. And then in verse 3, uh, we, we, we have an uh, evaluation, if you will, of Moses and God's perspective. And let's go down to verse 5, or actually verse 6. So he calls the three of them out, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And God says, hear now my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. That is not the case, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Speak with him, and I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. Dropping down, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? So, of course, someone could argue, well, that's Moses, that's different. And yes, it is Moses. The principle, however, I think is something we need to always bear in mind. We need to be careful how we talk about the ministry, just to be plain spoken. And we know, as verse 9 says, the anger of the Lord was aroused against them. And when the cloud dropped, verse 10, the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. So God was not happy about this at all. And we have to be careful and recognize that when God calls someone, and that is the key, when God calls someone, and he's using that person in a particular role, we need to be very careful about what we say and how we treat that person and what responsibilities we accrue to ourselves because clearly Aaron and Miriam messed up. But what if God's anointed one has sinned? The gloves are off, right? Well, not necessarily. If you would turn to the book of 1 Samuel, verse 24. First Samuel 24, verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. As you recall the story, King Saul was in pursuit of David and his men. He was trying to kill them. It's, not, it's a re the real deal. And David said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. So here we have King Saul who is beha behaving horrifically. He's trying to kill him. And David is thinking this way. I, he said, that's the Lord's anointed. And so David, in verse 7, restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went his way. So again, we have a principle that we should try our best to apply. And I will sum up with a couple thoughts here at, at the end of this particular section. Just, just my way of trying to... Um, Sum it up, you might come up with a different way. God's ministers are special for these reasons, at least two that I came up with. Number one, God chose them, and that's the key. God chose them, and he gave them his Holy Spirit. You could add to that, I'm sure. So we must, when we take a step back and say, wait a minute, God from heaven picked person A, B, C, whoever it is, gave him his Holy Spirit. Okay, we probably should give a little respect, make sure we're careful how we talk about them and what we say about them. And I'll wrap this little section up with this 
uh, these thoughts. The subject of the ministry relative to the membership can be a sensitive one. I've heard this discussed many times over the years, especially back in 94 and 95. A lot of people got hurt, and it's understandable that they would be upset. But here are a few thoughts that might be, I hope, are helpful. Ministers are not to be worshipped. That's not what I'm saying. Ministers are human too. Ministers can leave the truth. So what do we do with all that and the other things I've already said? Well, the best summation I could come up with is this. You will know them by their fruits, the fruit of the Spirit. And if you think about the analogy of a fruit tree, fruit trees typically live for many, many years. It's a multi-year process. There might be some years with the, where there's no fruit. There might be some years the fruit's not so good. But how does the story play out? I think, that, I think the inference there is that we need to give it a bit of time. So as we do need to evaluate, and we will continue to do that, perhaps that principle will be helpful to all of us. Okay, let's move on. Big lie number three. It's very similar to big lie number two. All you gotta do is take out the word minister, put in the word members. So big lie number three the Satan would like for us to believe is God's people are not special or worthwhile. If you would turn to the book of James, chapter three, and I'm going to have to find it because I, did, I added this late in the game. Didn't put it in my notes. James 3. Actually, let's start reading in verse 8. He's talking about the tongue. Verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil. It is full of deadly poison. Verse 9. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so, ought not to be so. So here James clearly lays out that this is a tendency, a behavior that we all can fall into. We say, oh, God is so wonderful, fantastic, but that guy, I mean, what a, what, a, what, a, what a jerk he is or what she is or whatever. We can easily fall into that behavior. And we're being told, don't do it. So let's, let's think again about this. The same two techniques appear again. As we consider, if you think about whenever we think something negatively about one another, and we do from some time to time, uh, what's going on? Well, again, our tendency is to evaluate Critique. I sometimes think when you think about things that are easy to do for a human being, the easiest thing, I think, if you're in normal, good health, is to breathe. It just happens. The second thing that's the most easy thing or the easiest thing for us to do as human beings is to critique and criticize one another. That's just my feeling. Maybe not. But it's pretty easy. I think it comes quite naturally. So we're not to do that as we just learn. Let's have a reminder or two about, besides what we've already read, made in the image, in the likeness of God, but let's also remind ourselves of the calling and what God has in mind and what he wants to do with each and every one of us. So if you would, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll start reading in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26. In fact, I'm going to start um, in verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. I'm going to skip the next part and come back to it. And God has chosen the weak, 
I'll skip that. And the base things of the world, and God has chosen. So three times we read God has chosen. And we know that he's, by and large, chosen the foolish things of the world, the weak things of the world, but it does say not many wise. There are some wise of the world who are called. So God has chosen the members. Now, if we can take, again, that proverbial step back, God up in heaven comes down, you, 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 you're on my team. Okay, that, that kind of blows the mind if you try to think of it that way. It's hard for us to do that. Right now, as I look out, God has cho- chosen all of you. Okay, wow, okay. Better get my act together, right? So this is what he has done. God did it. But let's see why he did it embedded in those verses. Verse 27, to put to shame the wise, to put to shame the things which are mighty, to bring to nothing nothing the things that are. This is our purpose. I mean, that's pretty incredible that we get to be a part of that. And he adds in verse 29, here's a reason why he wants to do it this way. So that no flesh should glory in his presence. We need to become humble. All men and women need to become humble. He does not want human beings, hey, look at me. I'm the real deal here. Stand back and show me some respect. That's not what God is all about. And he needs us to change. But we're used for that very, very special purpose. So as we look across the room today, as you interact, as Mr. Jimbers mentioned earlier, afterwards, try to always put that in the, somewhere in the front of your mind. Wow, God has called this person. And he just makes sure I'm respectful and appreciative and patient and all the things I'm supposed to do as a member, member of the body. So I'll wrap this up and in a simpler fashion is the point before. God's people are special for at least two reasons that I will share. God chose them. And he gave us his Holy Spirit if you're baptized. Both of those points are profound. A few key points similar to before. Members, of course, are human too. And we will see behavior that is not consistent with being a Christian. Sometimes. Members also can leave the truth. We know that. We've seen that. But again, I would share the same principle again. How do we deal with this in our, in our constant evaluation of each other, which is just natural. It's part of what we are and who we do. How do we deal with it? Well, one principle again is we will know them by their fruits of the Spirit over time. So give it some time. As we get ready to begin to close here, uh, I probably got a little ahead of myself, sorry. But as I get nearer to closing, it is, it is probably true, and I should try to be true since I'm talking about the truth, uh, that Christians don't usually buy these lies full on. It's like I go to a cafeteria and I can buy them all. I don't believe God's ways are valuable, don't like the ministers, and yeah, I don't like the membership. Got it, bought it, believe it all. We don't really do that. We tend to buy a little bit. It's kind of like an a la carte selection. Well, I'll take, you know, I don't really know about these people. And the ministers, eh, God's way is not that exciting. And so we buy, we kind of take little bites of it, right? So what does that mean? When we do that, I think the Bible says what we're doing is we're becoming of two minds. We're becoming double-minded. And there are scriptures in the Bible that talk about that concept, and we'll spend a little bit of time with them. In here in a moment. But before I do that, the title was Spies. One of the words was spy. So let's talk for a moment about a spy. Those of you who were around back in the early 80s, 1982 and 1983, 
Uh, what were you doing back then if you can, you know, if you're adult and teen or something, you, what was going on? Were you afraid? Should you have been afraid? Well, unbeknownst to many of us in those days, the world was on the brink of nuclear war. The U.S. and what was called the Soviet Union had been at odds for years, and things had come to a very heated point led by Soviet paranoia by a former KGB chief and the newly named general secretary of the Communist Party. His name was Yuri Andropov. You may remember that name. And at the same time, the U.S. was quite hawkish. They were talking, President Ronald Reagan at the time, about creating a Star Wars defense system. They were planning to install Pershing missiles in West Germany. And President Reagan famously had denounced the Soviet Union as an evil empire. This fed Yuri Andropov's paranoia, and he was convinced that the U.S. was going to start a nuclear war, and he sent his KGB uh, officers out to find evidence to support this, violating the first rule of intelligence, intelligence which is never seek send your people out to confirm something you already believe. But he did it. And while this was going on, there was a KGB agent by the name of Oleg Gordievsky. He became disenchanted with the Soviet system. He became, began spying for the British government, uh, MI6. And this man provided a wealth, a treasure trove of intelligence information, which uh, many believe helped, at least on a human level, avoid catastrophic nuclear escalation between these two world powers. This man, Oleg Gordievsky, put his life on the line for a cause he believed in, for his new country, Great Britain. But he was forced, forced to live a double life. He had to lie to everyone that he knew, his wife, his family, his co-workers, while he did this. He has been called the spy who saved the world. But leading this double life cost him his marriage, his children, his relationship with his parents, and all of his friends. So living a double life, which I mentioned earlier, when we allow lies to live in our lives, we, to a degree or another, are leading double lives. He paid a cost for what he did, even though he did a noble thing. Let's talk briefly about, the, about what the Bible says about this. James 1, verse 8, starting in verse 6. But let him ask in faith, James 1, 8, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if you look at the Greek, and we'll go quickly through this, but the word double-minded means to be two-souled, split into two souls, double-minded, okay? And some of the commentaries read it can create a situation where you are vacillating like a spiritual schizophrenic, pretty colorful language. But think of it, split souls, kind of do this, believe this, but you know, I kind of want to dabble here living in two worlds. But the result of that is what I want to focus on a bit more. So it says in, in the scripture, unstable. What does that mean in the Greek? It means unsettled, unstable. And the commentary again, or the lexicon reads, 
though these are hardly strong enough equivalents, almost anarchic, anarchic, of course, similar to the word anarchy, you have no controlling rules or principles to give order to your life. If you would, turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 33. 1 Corinthians 14, 33. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. That word confusion is the same word we just saw in James. It is and means instability. It says God then is not the God of instability. He is not the God of near anarchy in your life, not the God of a lack of order and structure in the way that you think. So we see two conflicting or very different descriptions. And in fact, if you look at it, the word also means, when he says that he is the God of peace, going on to the next words, the word peace there means to join or to tie together in a whole wholeness, things working together, which is completely different from what we just read. Double-mindedness is splitting in two. God wants to join together. He wants us as a membership, the body of Christ, to be joined together. That's how God works. So when we are double-minded, when we allow lies to take root, to lodge in our heart, as one of the scriptures says, uh, I believe that's in the Psalms, then we are going to have this inner struggle, and we've got to do our best to get rid of it. One last scripture, 2 Kings 17, 41. You don't, have to, you don't have to turn there. So these nations, it says, fear the Lord, yet serve their carved images. Also their children, their children's children, who continue doing as their fathers did, even to this day. Uh, about the most graphic example of, le- of leading a double life that I could think of in the Bible. So people do this. This is not something we make up. So what is the cost of it? What is the cost of being double-minded? We have disordered lives, so maybe it doesn't sound too terrible, but it's not a good thing. If we allow double-mindedness to continue to be a way of life, we will not be of God because the scripture plainly says that is not who God is. That's not what, part of his character. He is a God of peace. He is a God of bringing together. So at the very conclusion here, I'll share four ways to defend against lies and leading double lives. The author, Robert Fulham, author of a New York Times bestseller years ago, back in the 80s again. All I really, know, all I really needed to learn, I learned in kindergarten. Uh, with respect to him, I learned a very important lesson in elementary school. Probably should think about it more often than I do, and that is this. When I'm around someone who's not telling the truth, get away from them. I had enough common sense back in the day to say, I don't want to be around that guy. He's just ridiculous. But where Satan is far more sophisticated and knows how to get us, as I've already shared. But the first principle then is this, don't listen to the lie. If you're hearing a lie, just stop listening to it. Number two, use the light that is God's, God's word. This is Jesus Christ's great example in Matthew 4. The light of God's word will help you find the answer to discern Satan's lies and deceptions, no matter how sneaky and cunning he is. Again, bear in mind, that's number three, that Satan loves to attack, attack our identity and the identity of others, ministers and members alike. And number four, that he knows our tendencies. He knows what's on our mind, and he will do what he can to use that against us. 
So brethren, as I conclude, I will simply leave you with this phrase, don't buy the lie.